Welcome to ACT Radio, Animal Concerns of Texas. I'm Greg Lawson. I'm Tom Linney. And I'm Liz Walsh. Here on ACT, we talk about how we humans relate to other animals. We talk about how we use them for food, clothing, and entertainment, and how there are humane alternatives to these practices. And we also discuss why a plant-based diet is healthiest for humans and the best thing one can do for the environment. So if you're concerned about the environment, if you're concerned about human health, if you're concerned about the way animals are treated, stay with us for Animal Concerns of Texas. Coming up on today's show, we feature a conversation with Dr. Corey Wren, who's the founder of the Vegan Feminist Network and author of the book, A Rational Approach to Animal Rights. That's a little later on the show, but first some news. The issue of elephant conservation has been a hot topic lately since the Trump administration announced they may be lifting the ban on the import of animal remains from so-called trophy hunts. After widespread public outcry against this choice, the president announced that the decision would be put on hold and that he now views trophy hunting as a horror show that does not contribute to conservation in any way. Perhaps the greatest result of this heated controversy is that the importance of elephant conservation has been brought into a major public spotlight and has inspired countless people to stand up for elephants and other endangered species. Allowing the import of remains, like skins, body parts, and tusks, from imperiled animals provides the corrupt wildlife trade all the more leeway to get away with their vile attacks on our planet's biodiversity. Banning the import of animal remains creates an additional obstacle for ivory traders and other corrupt individuals. And as a petition on Care2.com states, many airlines have joined the global embargo on the transport of ivory and other animal remains. However, South African Airways has since lifted that important decision. The petition on CARE2 explains that every 15 minutes an African elephant is killed, whether it be from poaching or trophy hunts. Elephant populations have dropped by an alarming 62% in just the past 10 years, and at this rate, conservationists predict African elephants could become extinct by the end of the next decade. Something must be done now to protect our planet's elephants and other endangered species. Please take a moment to sign the petition at care2.com asking South African Airways that they stop transporting ivory and other remains now. A little closer to home, in response to a petition filed by the Center of Biological Diversity and several Texas-based conservation organizations, the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department agreed to propose a rule ending unlimited commercial trapping of the state's wild turtles. Texas is the latest of the list of states to ban or propose ending commercial reptile collection that includes New York, Missouri, and Nevada. Under current Texas law, unlimited collection of four native freshwater turtle species is allowed on private property. The common snapping turtles, red-eared sliders, smooth softshells, and spiny softshell turtles can all be trapped in an unlimited numbers. Texas modified its regulations in 2007 to protect freshwater turtles from collection on its public lands and waters. But this only resulted in protections for turtles in 2.2% of the total water bodies in Texas. Recent studies concluded that current turtle collection in Texas is likely not sustainable. The Parks and Wildlife Department's response to the conservation organization's petition came in a letter to the Texas Parks and Wildlife Commissioners. In it, the department's executive director, Carter Smith, wrote that in a review of the petition, along with the scientific literature and the department's own data, led to the conclusion that there is sufficient scientific justification at this time to proceed to rulemaking to end the unlimited commercial collection of freshwater turtles. The department's letters say turtles are among the non-game species of greatest concern and are highly sensitive to population alterations. Department staff plans to propose a rulemaking at a future commission meeting. Millions of turtles classified as wild-caught are exported from the U.S. every year to supply food and medicinal markets in Asia, where native turtle populations have already been depleted by soaring consumption. 
Because turtles bioaccumulate toxins from prey and burrow in contaminated sediments, turtle meat is often laced with mercury, PCBs, and pesticides, posing a health risk. Adult turtles are also taken from the wild to breed hatchlings for the international pet trade. The petition that spurred the recent action was submitted earlier this year by the Center for Biological Diversity, Sierra Club's Lone Star Chapter, Texas Rivers Protection Association, and the Texas Snake Initiative. For more information, go to www.biologicaldiversity.org. A recent poll conducted by the Sentinence Institute, a nonprofit think tank, found that the majority of Americans disapprove of slaughterhouses. In fact, the poll found that nearly half, 47% of U.S. adults, support a ban on slaughterhouses. The poll also found that 53% would prefer to eat clean meat, which is lab-grown cultured meat without animals, instead of animal-based meat if the price was competitive. J.C. Reese, the research director of the Sentinence Institute, said, We hope to conduct this survey every few years so that we can see how U.S. attitudes are changing, especially given the growth of the plant-based food sector. Sentinence Institute surveyed 1,094 U.S. adults in October and was census-balanced to represent age, sex, religion, ethnicity, and income. The questions focused on animal farming and animal-free food. Sentinence Institute's survey results are, are promising, considering that the world population will reach 9 billion by 2050, and it will be challenging to feed all the people. Demand for protein in the developed and developing world is at an all-time high, with the average person in the U.S. consuming over 100 grams of protein a day, around double the actual recommended amount. The animal agriculture system already covers over 45% of the world's land mass, uses a majority of fresh water resources, and is a major cause of air and water pollution. Studies show that one-third of Americans are leaving meat off their plates more frequently, and the plant-based protein market is booming. Plant-based protein could represent one-third of overall protein by 2050. Considering these plant-based alternatives and clean meat do not cause the same health and environmental problems that meat does, it's pretty clear that animal-free protein will be the way forward. And according to a new report entitled Top Trends in Prepared Foods in 2017, compiled by the research firm Global Data, 6% of U.S. consumers identify themselves as vegan, up from only 1% in three years. This study was reported in Veg News Magazine, Plant-Based News, One Green Planet, and by Mercy for Animals and others. I feel this estimate might be high, but it surely reflects a move by Americans to leave animal products behind. Stay with us. Coming up next, we feature a conversation with Dr. Corey Wren. She's the Director of Gender Studies and a lecturer of sociology with Monmouth University in New Jersey. She's an advisory board member with the International Network for Social Studies on Vegetarianism and Veganism with the University of Vienna. Dr. Wren is also the founder of the Vegan Feminist Network and author of the book, A Rational Approach to Animal Rights. Our conversation with Corey is coming up next on Animal Concerns of Texas.
Joining us now on Animal Concerns of Texas, Dr. Corey Wren. Thanks for being with us on the program, Corey. Hello. Thanks for having me. Corey, could you tell our listeners how you got involved in animal issues? Well, I think uh, similar to many people, it started when I was very young. I was always uh, an animal lover. I can remember my first uh, protest, really. We went to visit um, one of my dad's friends, and the the guy made this offhand comment that he couldn't stand those dogs in the backyard, and he was going to dump them off at the shelter. And I think I was about eight years old, and I, even then I knew what that meant. And I remember I went home, and I would not come out from under my bed until they called him so he could reassure me that he was just talking. He didn't mean it. Um, and then even in high school, I continued that. I worked. I was a writer for the school newspaper, and I wrote about animal issues. Uh, another major youth protest I had was in an anatomy class that I took. We were supposed to dissect a piglet. And I said, no way, I'm not going to do that. So the teacher said, all right, your, alter- your alternative project is going to be uh, write a paper on the positive the positivities of vivisection. Oh, <laughs> Can you believe it? I was a, a little 15-year-old girl. Like, what a, what a nasty thing to do to a child, you know? Oh, my gosh. So what do I do? I went and I wrote a paper about the problems with vivisection and turned that in, and she gave me a zero. Oh, <laughs> so, That's hello, awesome. Dr. DeGroote, Ms. DeGroote, wherever you are. Uh, you didn't shut me up. I'm still at it. But really, the uh, I can p- point to teachers really pushing me along the way. When I got to grad school, uh, I actually became the president of our uh, animal rights club at Virginia Tech, and I just loved it. And I wish I could have done more with it, but I didn't know that you could that studying animals was a legitimate thing, because it's so it's, there's a lot of discrimination against animal issues in academia. But what really turned the turning point for me is when I started my PhD program in Colorado State, and I was taking a theory class. And we were, it was one of the first days of class, you know, it was just fresh there, freshly moved from Virginia and still a little insecure and nervous. But we were talking about this basic theory in sociology about uh, who is, who qualifies as a person, who qualifies as having culture, how is meaning shared and things like that. And I brought up the point that, you know, in animal societies, that also happens. And the students in in graduate school at at Colorado State University really was a turning point for me. I'd always been really active for animals. Um, But I grew up in an Appalachian community, and I was really the only vegetarian I knew. And I went vegan, by the way, the first day that I went to college because I knew I had control over what I could eat. So I really always cared about it, but I had not really been – I didn't know that it was something you could do seriously in academia until really this turning point when I went to Colorado State in this graduate class where – we were talking about basic sociological theory and who is determined to be a person, who can be part of a culture, who's involved in a society. And I brought up to the class that, you know, non-human animals are also, and they also have meaning ascribed to their life. They share meaning with one another. They have cultures. They have communication. They have language. And the students really were lit up by that, and they were really engaged in it, and the, the conversation just took off. But it didn't get very far until the professor really just kind of shut it down and said, you know, we'll never really know about animals, so we need to just move on. And that there was something about, I mean, that that teacher went on to be uh, on my dissertation committee. I really admire her, but 
that offhand comment was really all it took. I said, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> so from then on, every graduate paper I wrote was about animals. Uh-huh. Said, no, you want to say this is not legitimate. I'm here to say it is legitimate. And then I came to find out that the American Sociological Association has a brand new section. And by brand new, I mean it's you know, maybe 15 years old, relatively brand new, for animals and society. And I said, here are my people, here are my people. So that was it. I decided to make my dissertation about uh, social movements because it's kind of my trade-off. I really am interested in non-human animals, but I know if I just make it about non-human animals, other sociologists really just don't care. And it really does it's – an, it's an impediment for me trying to build my career because other sociologists just think it's nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. So I went with social movements instead, and I really specifically looked at the animal rights movement. Now, it really did come to be something I cared about because, yes, it's one thing that we care about non-human animals, but now what are we going to do about it? So it's really crucial then to learn those tools on how to be better advocates for other animals. So that's really how I got into animal rights, Um, just kind of inherently I was always into it, but kind of being pushed by teachers along the way. And then the further I got into my career, the more I realized so we got a lot of people who care about animals. Now, how can we mobilize these people effectively to make change? Mm-hmm. You know, I thought when I was reading essays that you've written, I, I thought perhaps you got into sociology as a means of uh, making society better. Uh, just like yeah. I, I just I I studied psychology because I wanted to figure out why I was so ill. <laughs> now, uh, I I really enjoy your articles. And most of them uh, I, I agree with, uh, and I've even thought about, you know, how to become a more effective uh, activist. But there was one that I had a little bit of, of a problem with. We've recently had Paul Shapiro on the show from the Humane Society and uh, people from the Good Food Institute talking about how clean meat, lab-grown meat without animals, will uh, change the world. And you wrote a piece about how clean meat isn't really a good idea. Uh, Can you Mm. expand on that a little bit? Yeah, and I think the perfect corollary to that is to think about this new rise in robotic female sex toys. Um, There are lots of documentaries on these if people who are listening have never heard of these. They're now becoming affordable and popular where men go out and buy these realistic dolls. They're several thousand dollars. And they can basically have a woman that they fully control, that they can dress the way they want, that they can live with, that they can sleep with. And a lot of people would say, well, this is a good thing because this will reduce rape rates. This will reduce violence against women because now men have these toy dolls, these toy women, that they can do whatever they want to and get their needs met. But the problem with that is that we do live in a society that is deeply misogynistic. We do live in a society where violence against women is at epidemic rates. So if we are now creating these fake women for people to consume and do whatever they want, we're really facilitating a culture where we have a very marginalized group being treated as an object, a resource. And so, honestly, I think that it's not going to reduce violence against women. It's going to add to violence against women by really contributing to that culture of you can own women and women are there for your resource. And really, what can be more objectifying than turning a someone into a something? And so this is the same thing that's happening with this lab-grown meat um, debate. 
So now we still live in a society where violence against animals is at epidemic levels, like skyrocket levels, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're going to be contributing to that by consuming meat, if we want to get the fake meat, okay, maybe not actual animals were killed for that, although they are going to be killed in the laboratory process. Some are going to be used in the testing of it. But if we're still living in a society that's deeply, deeply speciesist, and we are contributing to that objectification, that cultural objectification of other animals, turning someone into something, even if the something is not a real, per- was not coming from a real person anymore. I think it's still contributing then to that culture of violence and that culture of degradation, that culture of discrimination against marginalized minority groups. Well, sure, it perpetuates the idea that animals are ours to use for food, symbolically, but in, in real life. If over 95% of the animals that uh, suffer and are killed are, are, are done that to, for our, our food, uh, then we're saving a lot of animals by moving towards clean meat. You know, going back to your point about getting people to see animals as someone and not something, a lot of your scholarship, you know, hits on things that uh, people who are uh, active in animal protection, what they should be doing to be better advocates and, you know, different techniques that work better than others. I'm wondering maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that you found um, that have been detrimental to uh, people who are involved in the animal protection movement and, and their cause and, and maybe some, some tactics that are that you found to be really helpful. Right. This is the thing. This is my number one Sorry to use a pet a pet peeve, but as, as a species, this kind of term. But it is my pet peeve is that the science, the research is out there. But the animal rights movement, and it's probably not just the animal rights movement. Other movements have this problem as well. They're just too bound up in ego and celebrity, and they just don't want to do the hard work that if you are going to be – if you are responsible – for making the world better for other animals, you need to be responsible in doing the research, reading, and being open-minded to what science has to offer. So too often, people people write books or they make YouTube channels, and they just base it on their personal opinion, and they ride their celebrity in order to get their ideas out there. And it's absolutely 100% not based on any evidence, no research to back it up. And for me, I think that's deeply, deeply irresponsible. The research is out there. So that was really one of my goals with um, World Vegan Month. Every month I do something like that. Either it's uh, a little bit of social psychology or I think last year I did research of the day. So I basically summarized very quickly um, these academic pieces, these scientific pieces of research that have been done so that people who don't really have time to go sift through all that stuff like I do for a living can at least get to the chase and know what they can apply to their own research. The thing is that most activists just do what other activists are already doing, and this is really Mm -hmm. kind of the the social conditioning that we have. We We learn about what we think is acceptable or effective based on what everybody else is doing. So I can give you an example. Really, this is I have all these kind of turning points in my mind when this is really where I say, okay, I need to investigate this. But this was one. Um, when I was working at Virginia Tech in the in that animal rights student group, there was a campaign that some of these um, activists wanted to do. They wanted to go um, help out this uh, college in a nearby town and get them to switch over to cage-free eggs. And I'm saying, <laughs> uh, no, I'm a vegan, and we're an animal rights group, and it's not our job to promote eggs, so let's think about something else. How about let's work with them to get some vegan options like our school has? 
And the activist, the, the, the other leader in the group, was just like, no, I mean, this is what everybody else is doing. And, and this, but just because everyone else is doing it does not mean that this is effective. And I've also worked with a student group. I founded a student animal rights group at Colorado State, and it was the same deal. The students just come in basically already primed or wired by the big national groups on what is what you're supposed to do. But the big secret is none of those research, they, they don't know if that works or not. For instance, PETA, PETA is notorious for their sex sells approach, and we think it's a very common sense. And there's a social psychology to that. It sounds like it should be true. People just think it's true, but they don't really care to see if it actually has science to back it up. So what happened was there's some social psychologists in Australia actually went out and tested, does the, do these campaigns work when you have naked women outside? And what they found was absolutely not. It doesn't work. And, in fact, it repels people. And, in fact, it was repelling men because the men that they were trying to get to, the men were seeing that this was degrading to women and yeah. really were not mm-hmm. interested in the message at all. Yeah. So the problem here is that no one cares about the research. Nobody cares about the evidence. When PETA was told about this research, they dug down and said, no, we know this works and keep doing it. So I'm really pushing for people to actually look to see if it works. Right. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I liked in, in one of your essays, and I think this is something that can apply to a lot of different social justice movements, is, is uh, the study that was about asking people for something really big, and then which they're more likely to, you know, mm-hmm. to say no to, but then following it up with a slightly less uh, large of a request to do something. And so for obviously, for instance, for us, it would be, hey, you know, why don't you go vegan? And then, you know, follow it could be, you know, start meatless Mondays or uh, some other tactic. Um, I found that to be particularly helpful. Or you could say, what if you try fasting for a month? And then when they say no, you say, go vegan. <laughs> right. That's, a, that's actually, you know, that's a little, okay, that's facetious. But actually, that, that, that is a point that I make, is that the large nonprofits, so one of the larger nonprofits had this guy who has no training, Nick Cooney has no scientific training, to my knowledge at all, has written a book on social psychology. But what he did was basically look up the research to support what his organization was already doing. And so what I did is I went back and looked at that original research and said, because I've taught social psychology at the college level. So I know, I mean, I'm familiar with this research as well. So I went back and said, you know what, what if we use that research for activism that's not selling out the animals, but actually promoting veganism? So maybe you shoot high and say, go vegan right now, overnight. Let's do it right now, (laughs) tomorrow. And people are like, whoa, okay, maybe not. Okay, uh, I haven't thought about it. Then you can come back with the follow-up approach and say, all right, well, then try one meal at a time and gradually work up to it. But what happens with the nonprofits is they think, whoa, you're just going to scare people off with the vegan thing. Let's shoot, let's lowball and just tell them to eat, uh, to reduce their meat or whatever, of course. And then the social psychology on that also, lots of research on food psychology shows that people already think that they eat better than they do. Yeah. And in fact, some, some, this is the creepy part. Some research finds that people who claim to be flexitarian, and by the way, I have an article that's about to come out through Society and Animals on this very topic about flexitarianism. Mm-hmm. But the research shows with flexitarianism, some people who claim to be flexitarian identify with that, that uh, identity, that food identity, that consumption identity, but their behaviors do not match up to it at all. In fact, one study found that flexitarians claiming to be flexitarian actually ate more meat. Oh, wow. So, 
So we actually need to be thinking about what are we promoting and what happens when we make the bar so low that any old body can call themselves a vegetarian. We're not really holding anyone, anyone up to the real goal that we have to eliminate animal products from your lifestyle. They're lowballing it. Yeah. And honestly, there's a political reason for that. I, when I was younger, I just could not understand why are these big organizations with all this money, with all this sway, why are they selling out and not aiming for what they really want? Because if the animal rights organizations aren't going to ask people to go vegan, who is? Yeah. So what I actually want my new research now, what I'm really looking at is the politics of the social movement space. Because now we have charities that have become – now, these nonprofits, the whole nonprofit sector is something that's relatively new in the Western kind of uh, political space or public sphere. It's relatively new. And it really took off in the 1980s, and it really in the animal rights movement took off in the 1990s. Now, what happened is all the grassroots organizations really got swept aside. And they got swept aside not by accident, not because survival of the fittest, but because the government has an interest in squashing out radical politics. So they come in with a little carrot on the stick and say, hey, if you become a nonprofit and you become transparent to us and you water down your tactics, we'll give you these perks. We won't harass you with the police. We'll give you some tax exemptions. And so especially for cash-poor grassroots groups, that that was just so tempting. So now what has happened is that this is not just the animal rights movement, all movements. All of these movements really have been corporatized because they've been pushed into this nonprofit sector. And the, and the cost of doing that means you can no longer have this radical, you cannot have this radical agenda anymore. So now they become highly, highly re reliant on funding, on getting those grants, because the bigger you get, the more responsibilities you have, the paychecks that you have, the keeping the lights on, these big campaigns that need to be funded. So the inevitable result, and this happens not just in our movement, but every social movement, the inevitable result is a watering down of tactics. Hmm. And really what the, the creepy part about it, the insidious part about it, is they start to attack the radical grassroots groups. So they are now doing the work of the state by policing the social movement space. Hmm. So this is why you see this great stigmatization of veganism, because they are now reliant on those grants and that foundation money. Now, who funds the foundations? But these are tax loops, loopholes that were created for elites, so they don't have to pay taxes. They can create these foundations, and then they can decide who gets the money through the foundation. So the radical groups can no longer come up with their radical message and get money in return for that. They have to water it down considerably and say, okay, we're going to do um, meatless Mondays, and that's much more likely to get funding than say we're going to push for this radical vegan uh, <laughs> agenda. We've been talking with Dr. Corey Wren, who's director of gender studies and lecturer of sociology at Monmouth University and author of the book A Rational Approach to Animal Rights. We, should pre uh, we uh, really appreciate you being with us on the program, Corey. Uh, can you tell our listeners where they can go on the web to read more of your uh, thoughts. Yeah, thanks for having me. You can see me at com, and there I always have my all of my published research there free to read, and I also regularly update my blog with current events and research tidbits that everyone can benefit from. Great. Thanks a lot, Corey. Thanks, Corey. Very informative. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. If you'd like to learn more about a vegan diet, please visit the website of the Vegetarian Society of El Paso at vsep.org. 
There you will also find our calendar of events, which uh, lists the number of exciting events we have coming up in the near future. If you'd like to listen to some of the past shows of ACT Radio, you can find them at ktep.org. Just click on the Listen button. And if you're beginning to do your holiday shopping, just do a search for vegan gifts and you'll find many options. I'm Liz Walsh. I'm Greg Lawson. And I'm Tom Linney. For the animals, the earth, and a healthier humanity. Thanks for listening to Animal Concerns of Texas.